Hello and welcome to Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Christelle. The Top 100. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. You can find me at Jonathan Dunn. And we're discussing our all-time Top 100 video games. This week, we have our number 68. But before we do that, oh, oh, I I, I tell you what, guys, (laughs) I had a hell of a weekend. Saturday night, went out for a curry, very nice. But I had the suspicion that it didn't quite agree with me and uh, had a bit of a restless night, tossing and turning, stomach pains, uh, which I must say was a real shame because I had to run a marathon on Sunday, which I did despite my ailing tum-tum. However, <laughs> things took a turn for the worse partway through, and I had to pull over to one side, hike my shorts to one side, and shit out a runny one in the gutter. <laughs> I would have been left feeling very embarrassed, but then I remembered that I was just paying homage to my marathon-running idol that is Paula Radquiz. <laughs> I wonder what you were doing. <laughs> Jesus. The score is currently 15-14 in favour of Chris. So, let's see if Minty can pull it back. The long-running series Ultima falls into which gaming genre? RPG. Oh, well, Chris is straight in there with an answer to a a question about a game that I've never heard of. (laughs) Hmm. Is it correct, at least? (laughs) Oh, yes, sorry, that is correct. It is 16-14 to Chris. Yes. Ooh, he's pulling ahead. He's doing it. So, what have we been playing this week, Chaplingtons? Christopher, what have you been up to? Loads. I've been really busy this week. Two kind of notable gaming events, I guess. The start of the week, I spent time up in London with our mutual friend, Jonathan Jean. In conversation, we were talking about Mario Maker 2. Yeah. And off the back of that, talked about, like, obviously the games that kind of fed into it that, that you can use the themes of within Mario Maker 2 and I admitted that I'd never beaten Super Mario World Ah. so we went out in the day had a few drinks and then went back to his in the evening and decided we were just going to try and session the whole game in in one go because it's something that he's played a thousand times over the years we didn't finish it in one night we had to pick it up in the morning week but I can now say I have beaten Super Mario World and it is an excellent game. And it's one that I'm sure if I had played as a child, it would have ranked somewhere in this list. But because I've never given it more than like half an hour here and there, it never really entered you know, my head when I was compiling this big old list. Yeah, I'm the same with that. And then the latter part of the week, having just returned last night, I spent some time up the country, up north with my brother. And we went to the arcade club in Berry again, which I've, I've been oh, to a few times you now. love it. I do. I really, really love it. We did all the usual stuff. Like we, we spent time on Sega Rally and Daytona and all those games. But we spent the most time. We, we both kind of picked one game we decided we were going to get good at. Uh, my brother spent a good probably two hours playing a game called Flicky, which has like loose ties to Sonic 3D. Yeah, Flicky's Island. Yeah, there we go. It's the same birds. Uh, and the principle in that is essentially you're collecting birds to take to a door and avoiding enemies as you go so it's it's basically the same principle as sonic 3d but he really enjoyed that and i spent a huge time playing a really old shoot-em-up called time pilot which i can't remember if i've mentioned before is is one i quite like 
it's different. It's not like a vertical or horizontal shooter like most of them are. It's kind of a 360 degree anywhere around the level kind of wrapping round and round. And it's it's just essentially about like movement and avoiding enemies and, and you know, getting a high score that way. And I, I made it my mission to try and beat someone's score that I watched beat mine already <laughs> earlier in the day. And it took like a good hour of just like grinding it out. But the sense of satisfaction at the end of that was like a full on like punch the air shouting moment. Amazing. Was he standing in the wings ready to come back in? I think he was probably somewhere close. Uh, but it, you only get that experience like in a proper arcade. And, and what, I, yeah. what I really like about that place is just it has like an atmosphere to it that makes that kind of thing much more fun than it would be if I was just grinding out Time Pilot at home. So yeah, really great. Recommended it. Well, I'll tell you what I've been playing this week. Go on then. So I decided uh, after a bit of a bit of a bleak week with a, a very, very ill puppy, I decided that I would get something to cheer myself up with and decided to play through This War of Mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cheery one, isn't it? My gosh. Minty has been staying with me for the last few days and I must say that it became, uh, I wouldn't say an easier thing to get through, but I certainly benefited from having the support playing the game (laughs) for it is an incredibly bleak gaming experience. For those who haven't played it, it's a strategy game set in a fictionalised war zone that is based quite heavily on the Siege of Sarajevo and instead of playing as the military you're playing as the civilians and you need to by day try and survive cook food craft things to try and get rainwater or meat or make guns and weapons board up your house to try and protect yourself and then by night you send somebody out to scavenge and try and find more materials more weapons maybe some other survivors to trade with try and get medicine if anyone falls ill and you basically do that and try and survive until ceasefire is declared, which can be anywhere from about a month or two months, uh, depending on kind of how the game randomly puts it together. And it's very, very bleak. I read a, re- a review online, which was written by somebody who was one of the survivors of the Siege of Sarajevo. Oh, God. I know, I know. Saying that it, this is an absolute masterpiece. And for anyone who's been led to believe from other sort of wartime video games that war is exciting or fun, they need to play this to actually see what the reality of war is. I mean, it subverts you at every single turn. So... In sort of any other game, I was out scavenging. There was somebody, I was raiding their house and I was like, oh, I've got a shovel. I I smacked them over the head with the shovel. I think, okay, it's fine. I'll just, you know, I'll carry on. But then you get back and the character who you did that with, their mood has changed suddenly to being just depressed and they can't do anything and they need to talk it through with another survivor or they they stop wanting to feed themselves. And it has a real big effect. And something that really took us by surprise was when we we managed to sort of sneak into a house and we managed to get into the people who were in the house. We managed to get into their fridge and we we're like, oh, my God, amazing. Like there was there was food and it was like fantastic. Great. We've I don't we don't need to worry about food in our house now for, you know, for a few days. This is what a great haul, what a great find. We we're so excited about it. And we got back and then the character was like, I can't believe I left that family with nothing they're gonna they're gonna die and then like they were depressed and then one of the other characters was like i can't believe katia just did that to that family like this is i really thought more of her and he was depressed and then 
and then like it just got it got worse and then their mood would go from depressed to broken and they'd just sit on the floor crying they couldn't even move and you had to get somebody else to come over and feed them and try and talk them but then like they ended up killing themselves and it's just like just the the smallest actions have just the biggest consequences and it's meant that now on the playthrough that me and minty are doing when we were raiding somebody's house we were like right they've got four vegetables in this fridge we'll, we'll only take two of them we we don't need more than two and we'll leave them with something and there was one bit where the game had definitely set it up to to make you feel like this where one of the early sort of scavenge locations you could go to was like a little house and i sort of went in there and it was it was really quiet and then i sort of went into the, uh, their kitchen and I was like oh awesome there's loads of food in here there's some materials and then I just heard a voice saying oh go and see what's there darling and this little old man comes down and he's like get out of my house and you're like oh no and I, I t- what did you do? I took a shovel to his head <laughs> and then and then I sort of oh, I went back upstairs and there's a little old lady just in in a settee saying, "Was there anyone there, darling?" And I, I put her out of her misery as well. And I thought, "I'll just I'll just raid the house and get back home." And I went upstairs, and there was a, a, a half finished letter written on the on the table that the the man was writing. And it said, "From from Grandpa Bernard to little Alan." No, I know that war is is a horrible time, but it is much better in the country where you are than here in the city. But I, but I look forward to when you're back soon. And when you're back, we'll finish repairing your swing. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously, I felt as broken as the character did when he got back home. And that scenario ended up with two of them killing themselves, one of them running away. It was awful. Awful. <laughs> so that's been great. <laughs> it's been an emotionally charged weekend. Jesus wept. Mm. I wept. Oh, it was awful. Mm. But uh, very, very good game. A very important game. And it's, it's one of those, I was talking about it with Sammy, saying like stories that you can't tell in other media. Yeah. And the way you experience this, you couldn't do in another medium. And to be fair, I didn't think you necessarily could do it in this medium because this is the only time where war has been depicted like this. Yeah. As opposed to vehicle for an action game. And it's half price on the uh, Nintendo eShop. So, uh, <laughs> cheery, cheery times. Get it while you can. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Minty. So, yes, uh, I've been carrying on with Fire Emblem Three Houses. Do you remember last week I said I took umbrage with the fact that uh, I was at a point where I was about to get some exposition from a character and then they went and died? Very selfishly, yes. That's happened twice more. Oh my. (laughs) I am still none the wiser as to who I am or why I'm there. And I think I'm on the final chapter. Bloody hell. Yeah, I've I've put it down for a little while because on Friday I picked up the remastered version of Turok 2 Seeds of Evil. Oh, Minty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I remember two being better than one. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, something else I have played this week. I did, after you tagged me in it on Twitter, Chris, I decided to give PictoQuest a go. Oh, is it any good? A Picross game with light RPG elements. It's okay. I mean, to be honest, it's... I'm not really enjoying it. I mean, it's Picross, so I enjoy Picross, obviously. 
but the RPG elements are so light that they simply it just gets in the way and it doesn't enhance the gaming experience so the idea is when you go into doing a Picross puzzle that's into a fight and you could be fighting anywhere between one and three enemies and the way you attack an enemy is by completing a line or row in the Picross grid and the enemies have a certain timer that goes up and when their timer fills up if you haven't attacked them by then then they attack you and you have a certain amount of health and you can scroll through the enemies sometimes so you can attack different ones if they're more likely to attack or whatever which means that you're trying to solve the grids as quickly as possible which whilst i do like solving puzzles quickly and that's more just working at my own speed of thought and i enjoy it when i can get on a bit of a roll and do it quite fast it's not something that I like necessarily to feel rushed into doing yeah. because I like being able to take my time and solve the puzzle and that's really therapeutic and so this game totally destroys that Aww. and so yeah so it's not not that much fun to be honest it's a shame I mean it looks like one of those hybrids that could have worked really well that's you know yeah. obviously why I've sort of brought it to your attention because I know it ticks the boxes of, of stuff you quite like but yeah, I mean, sometimes you do have these kind of weird hybrids that work really nicely. And Pokemon Picross was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That worked really well. But yeah, thank you for the recommendation. But, um, yeah, <laughs> but, it's, but it's a shocker. <laughs> you'll shortly be receiving an invoice for £7.19. <laughs> <laughs> Which I will pay duly as an apology. Don't pay duly, pay me. Yay! <laughs> so moving on to the rankings. Starting this week, we have... Chris's game. Chris, can you please tell us what your 68th favourite video game of all time is? Please, sir. Right, this this is a, this is a big one for me. Obviously, it's not my favourite game because it's only 68 on the list. But it's a really, really important game. And thinking about this, driving home yesterday from, from my trip up north with my brother, we've both got like memories of this game and we sort of talked about it together, which really helped to flesh out why I think this is so special. It's potentially the first game I ever played. Oh. And this is something that I would have played when I think I would have been about four or five, maybe, for the first time. Wow. Uh, and when I was really young, I had an older cousin who was kind of maybe six, seven years older than me, my cousin Phil. And whenever my mum would go and visit her sister, I'd, I'd go and I'd hang out with my cousin. We would play the Sega Master System that he had in his house at the time. And this was the first exposure I ever had to video games. In, in terms of like an interactive thing that you press buttons and something happened on a screen. And I was absolutely transfixed from the first moment I saw that happen. Like, like that sort of combination of we're doing something on this control pad and something is happening on that screen. It almost doesn't matter what we're playing. It's like that sense of interactivity blew me away at age, like I said, like four or five was just a huge, huge deal. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I remember sitting on the floor, like cross-legged a few feet from the TV, but a year or so later, like after those, those initial times of, of going to my auntie's house and playing these games, that Christmas, we received my cousin Phil's hand-me-down master system as, as like a, a Christmas gift. But we got the console itself, as well as the three games I remember playing like most vividly with him, which were Double Dragon, like a port of the arcade game, Taito Chase HQ, which is kind of like a, a rudimentary sort of racing game sort of thing, and this game, which was Castle of Illusion, Aww. the Mickey Mouse sort of tie-in or, or loose tie-in game. And it just it makes me feel quite emotional thinking about it. Like This is such a big deal. That it's like when, when I normally talk about Mega Drive games, for instance, I, I'm always doing so with like an element of nostalgia, that these are things I played when I was young. But they're games that I've, I've revisited again and again. And they're games now that I have like a more modern appreciation of because I've lived with like the Mega Drive games for so many years. 
that I have obviously the the childhood memories of when I was like eight, nine, ten, whatever, playing these games. But also I've got these adult memories of them and kind of the the gaming and life experiences that comes with that. Yeah. But the Master System was such an early thing that even if I've played these games since and like, you know, I come back to Castle of Illusion sometimes or other Master System games, I've never been able to shed the feeling that goes with it of like discovering games themselves for the first time. And so much of my life to this point has been punctuated or sort of flavoured by this idea of just always having video games around that it all comes back to the master system. It all comes back to that first time of picking up a controller and, you know, controlling Mickey Mouse, jumping up and down and thinking like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. (laughs) I mean, our master system as well, by the time we got it, like I said, it was a hand-me-down console. It was a master system one, so kind of the big wide power base version, like the big massive rectangular ones. It had the AC adapter, like the plug for the wall. The the safety prong was broken off. And I've got memories of dad teaching me to jam a screwdriver in the wall, in the top pin, to open up the live ports below it. Great work there, Mick. Yeah, yeah, cheers, Mickey. And like the coaxial cable, like the aerial cable on the back of it, it it didn't have the the actual connector. It was just like loose wires. So in order to make that work in the master system, dad taught us to wrap it in two loose loops, like around the part of the console that make it work. And this is, you know, I'm like five, six years old and dad's teaching me to jerry-rig a master system. Never too young to start learning engineering. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he also taught us like how to tune it in using the TV and like the jumbo TV remote that had like nine volt batteries in the back of it. Like all of this stuff comes to mind as soon as I see like the title screen of Castle of Illusion. I think about all these memories. Like there's, there's just Or even just a mouse. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, it's like now looking at it, if, if I hear the opening music or I see the beginning of the game, it's like I remember holding that controller, that our controller even, that the D-pad had fallen out and the, the plastic of the D-pad was held in place with like electrical tape. <laughs> all these weird memories come to mind and I, I, yeah. I sort of see like the colours on screen and just thinking at that age when I was five, six years old, thinking this is how I want to spend the rest of my life. Like, I, I want to be in this world forever. <laughs> I mean, the game itself, it's, it's a platform game. It had, like, the Disney factor. So, like, you knew Mickey Mouse as a kid, so it was just exciting to to play something which connected to things you liked. And I think that was where a lot of the kind of interest in those tying games would come from for kids. It was just something you recognised that you could control rather than just watch. Yeah. I mean, talking with my brother when we, when we were driving home yesterday, I said, like, okay, I'm going to be talking about Castle of Illusion tomorrow. And he said, even the name. The, the name's just so mysterious and great. Like, he, he was just, like, totally totally drawn into this idea of the cast of illusion, something that is unknowable. It's like, it's a mystery. And I love the fact that all these games came at a time when there was no internet, like, outside of, like, the odd Sega Power magazine or something I had as a kid. Every experience was new and exciting, especially when this was, like I said, like, year dot for me playing video games. And I mean, I've beaten this game since, like that I've played over the years. I never did as a kid, but I have done since. But talking to Tom, my brother, he said, even now, he said, I have no idea how many stages in the game and I don't care. It's like, I've always just assumed it's massive. Yeah. It's, it's the idea that like everything is unknowably big when you're that age. Yeah, I was like that with Alex Kidd. So yeah. It turns out 15 minutes and you're done. But, <laughs> but you don't know that when you're young, do you? It's no. like, it, se- it seems huge. Yeah. Because you just end up replaying the first few stages again and again. Like everything about it is it's got like joyful music that sounds great on the master system. It's got graphics that at the time seemed as good as TV cartoons, even though that's obviously not the case on a on an eight bit machine. But it does have a real level of polish that I think does stand up today. Like if you if you play it through on an emulator or something, it still looks good, it still feels nice to play. Above all this stuff, it's almost not about the game itself. I think whatever the earliest game was could have made it in this list for this reason. Yeah. Castle of Illusion is a good game. It's definitely a good game. But for me, it's just 
probably the most important game because it started this whole hobby yeah at this age and at this time when so on summer holiday from school as much as i enjoy my job as much as i enjoy this time the summer holiday is a time when i reconnect this idea of games and it all comes back to this it all comes back to cast of illusion so my my 68th favorite video game is the first video game i remember playing and it's mickey mouse castle of illusion that is wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing those memories. We never had Cast of Illusion ourselves on the Master System, but we did rent it out once. Mm. And I remember like my brother just being like, oh, I've got Castle of Illusion. And my mind was just like, oh my, I literally can't imagine more exciting words. <laughs> That's incredible. And uh, I remember watching Alex play it. And I think the closest thing we had to it as a similar sort of experience was probably the Asterix game on the Master System. Also really good. Fantastic game. <laughs> really, really good. Yeah. As an aside... When Sammy was clearing through some of her stuff in her mum's loft, she found a copy of Asterix on the Master System, and uh, I now have that on my shelf in my office. That's amazing. Uh, Also, I dressed up as Asterix as a young lad for World Book Day once in school, so... (laughs) (laughs) These are stories for another day. As for now, I have a story for you chaps about my 68th favourite video game. Oh, go on then. I believe that this game is the most recent game I played that made it onto the list at the time of writing it. So for for any new listeners, which which I'm sure there are, it's worth stating that when we started the podcast, we drew a line under our lists, so we're not adding anything new that we've played since we've started recording. So any games that have come out or games that we've only just got around to playing in the last few months won't be on our lists, which for me includes games like Dead Cells, which is almost certainly <laughs> top 20, maybe even top 10 game, and Dark Souls and well, loads of others. But this is the last one that snuck through under the time barrier to make it onto my list. Even still, it took me a little time to actually get around to playing it as whilst reviews for it were good, it didn't get the same high scores as its spiritual predecessor, which was a game that I absolutely loved. However, after going for a few months without having played either The Binding of Isaac or Super Meat Boy, I had a bizarre craving for the scatological humour and gameplay design of one Mr. Edmund McMillan, and I decided to buy... The end is nigh. Oh. Which is my game. (laughs) (laughs) So The End is Nigh is a 2D platform game that is hard as nails and features a similar design aesthetic to its much lauded predecessor, which is Super Meat Boy. And I think the reason why The End is Nigh wasn't as well received as Super Meat Boy is down to a couple of things. Chiefly, it looked a bit like Super Meat Boy, and it wasn't Super Meat Boy 2, which is probably what audiences thought they wanted, as opposed to something new or different. Heaven forfend. <laughs> but, but this is actually where I really started to enjoy The End is Nigh. So whilst Super Meat Boy was, it was set up as lots of individual levels that demanded you to have a masterful grip of the controls under immense time constraints, The End is Nigh... It was essentially an open-world 2D platform game, which which is, is quite extraordinary, to be honest, and something that I haven't really seen done before. And even though it did require you to navigate very, very tricky stages, sometimes under incredible pressure, it seemed to be more focused on the puzzle-solving elements of 2D platforming and almost an exploration element to the game. This made it a totally different beast to Super Meat Boy, and for me, one that is almost certainly on a par with it in terms of quality. 
Now, obviously, it does have a similar aesthetic as all of Ed McMillan's games do. Lots of gross stuff. Uh, The collectibles in the end is nigh that you're hunting down are, in fact, cancerous tumours, obviously. (laughs) Naturally. And the whole game has a rotting post-nuclear radioactive theme that sees everything either dying or growing or oozing or pulsating. And this is all presented in a beautiful monochromatic flash-style animation until you got into the level set in hell where everything would turn blood red which looked absolutely incredible after spending you know a good few hours in black and white the way that it's set up is that the stages run on from one another over a larger overall zone so even though you were essentially tackling levels on an individual basis you could also find shortcuts and hidden secrets by finding alternate routes in levels which would then take you back maybe onto a previous level or even you know over a few levels and find little secret paths and and stuff like that so even though you were tackling aesthetically similar individual levels it felt like you were exploring a whole large zone rather than bite-sized chunks much like super meat boy the controls were incredibly tight and well balanced but very very different to super meat boy so you moved a lot slower and you had a lot more stickiness to your character and you also had a lot more control over your character which would allow you to say drop off the edge of a ledge and and hold on to the end of it so you could make a more precise jump across a chasm or through some trap riddled corridor and the slower approach worked very very well with the design and it felt a lot more cerebral than super meat boy so you really had to take your time figure out the best way through a level which would then be incredibly satisfying when you finally pulled that off The only downside of that is that when I went back to playing Super Meat Boy after playing this, my grasp of the controls in Super Meat Boy had totally been shot to shit. (laughs) I remember talking about that before. It it came up, didn't it? Yeah, I I mentioned this. Yes, I did. I did indeed mention this in a previous episode. And answers on the back of a postcard, and there'll be a prize for who can find which uh, episode that was. It'll be an Ed McMillan-themed shit in a box. (laughs) 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 But they were absolutely... I mean tons of levels and variants of those levels as well and also when you complete the game you then get transported to an incredibly harder version of the entire game again which i've never quite got around to completing there are loads of secrets and collectibles and there's just loads of replay value and tons of content which obviously doesn't surprise me as edmund millen has been known for throwing everything including the shit-filled kitchen sink <laughs> into a game <laughs> But this certainly seemed to be a bit more restrained in terms of his uh, his usual offerings. And as such, I think the balance is really, really good. So there's tons of content for people who want a decent and hard 2D platform game. It's got loads of content in there for those who are a bit more hardcore. And even then, if you want to 100% it, you're going to be playing it for a very, very long time. I really, really rate this game. I think that it was overlooked by many because of its comparisons to Super Meat Boy, but I think it's a real treasure of a platform game and one that I would certainly encourage everyone to seek out and play, and especially as it's available on so many platforms. I played this on the Nintendo Switch, by the way, and I must say that playing it in a handheld form was a wonderful experience. I can certainly see myself going back at some point to either play through the main game again or just to have a fresh attempt at going through some of those absolute bastard final levels. <laughs> I, I think uh, Ed McMillan, for the games he's worked on, I think we mentioned before, like as much as there's been issues maybe we, we talked when Minty brought up Barney of Isaac that a lot's been added to these things which sometimes maybe waters down the core concept. Yeah, I think as, as a pure designer, 
he is very, very good. Yeah. Because almost everything he's released, and this goes right back to kind of like the early sort of flash experiments he was putting out years and years back. There, there's always like a clarity of vision in at least like the core approach or, or core mechanics of his games that he really nails. Like, as we said, sometimes there's too much content maybe or or things are added to the point where it kind of takes something away maybe from what that, that core is. But the, the basis of all of them is is super, super strong. I haven't played tons of the end is nine, but I really enjoyed what I did play. And it's something that one day I'd, I'd love to have the time to actually get into a bit more, especially on your recommendation. Basically doing these lists, it's just you two bring up games I haven't played that much and then I'm desperate to go and play them. <laughs> Apart from obviously Turok and Turok 2. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, lastly, it's time for Minty's game. Minty, can you please tell us about your 68th favourite video game, please, sir? I once went on holiday with my cousin, and he bought one of those Game Boy Advance cartridges that were like the 200-in-one type deals. Yeah. Sure. I, you know, they're mostly like crap little card games or just like single-screen platform shovelware type stuff. But this particular cartridge had two legit games on it. You know, games that were released on their own cartridge. Hoo-wee. What a coup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One was Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which we both enjoyed. But obviously not in a... I'll immortalise this on a top 100 list that I'll make in 15 years. <laughs> but the other one was... Because we we were, we were more concerned with completing Harry Potter at the time, we only gave this one a, a slice of attention... But I did buy a legit copy of it when, when I got back. The full version, I like to I like to think, because because it was obviously on a two hundred and one cartridge, it was incomplete in quite an obvious way. <laughs> Almost as if this compilation had not been compiled with the full authority or sanction of any developers. <laughs> yeah, it was incomplete in the most obvious way because the name of every character and monster was capped at five letters. So <laughs> me and my little friend Charm, who was <laughs> given to me by Prof, an ageing academic, went all over the land fighting others and taking down the national crime syndicate known as Team Roke. <laughs> which was headed up by the notorious Giova before becoming the champ with my team of Chari, Zapdo, Nidok, Poliwu, Vilp, and Kadab. This then opened up post-game content which went further than the game it remade went. So we had a whole new set of islands with a fun little paralogue story that had you routing the last stragglers of the aforementioned Team Roke before catching uh, some of the other legendary Pokem that had been introduced in later games. Uh, Pokemon Fire Red. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was really nice to look at, thanks to the Generation 3 graphics uh, and the inclusion of those Sevi Islands, I believe they were called, where the new content took place, gave the game like a, like a newness and an enticing unfamiliarity, which I really loved, and running shoes. Yes, chiefly. Yeah. It's a lovely game to revisit, and uh, it's nice to be able to do that with updated graphics, gameplay mechanics, rather than just popping open an emulator and, you know, spending six hours going through boxes on your PC mm. to find Black Cab or <laughs> Combom. <laughs> this is like deep R3Sense lore coming out now, isn't it? <laughs> uh. 
is Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green, are they the ones that came with that little Game Boy Advance wireless communication adapter so you could trade via some rudimentary Wi-Fi or Bluetooth? Yes, yes. Or infrared. I think it was infrared, mm. yeah, because it didn't work very well. No, it was awful, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So there we have it. Another three games, another eclectic trio of games. First of all, we had... The Castle of Illusion. Then we had The End is Nigh. Before finally... Creatures in a Blazing Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do leave us a review, like it, share it with your friends, subscribe to us. For goodness sake, what are you doing? If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, Our Three Cents. You can go to our website, www.our3cents.co.uk. Feel free to submit any questions that you might like us to answer or topics you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. Sharpen your pencils. I'm at Minty Booth. And please do join us next week for our 67s. 67. 67.